The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. Pooty, Peanate, Raj Mahal, loving it. Back together two, again. Two, two weeks, weeks in a row yeah, is almost a habit. <laughs> almost. Um, Next week it'll be a habit. Welcome to episode two of the Rebels at War. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. There Just you go. Making that up. Yeah. It's like a like a season. If we did, you know what I mean. If we did the podcast in seasons, that could be a whole season. I don't know how many years ago this was. We did the what do we call like cultural warfare or apologetic warfare or something like. When we did a series, yeah, we did yeah, a series. Yeah, you're like, right. Oh man, what was, was that called? It was. It this went is on bad for a radio long, right now. As we're just terrible. sitting here this thinking, but we're yeah. doing admin on air. Um, <laughs> is what we're doing right now. Yeah, um, it was good though. I do remember that. Um, I don't remember some, what it was about. The though. truth apocalypse. Truth apocalypse. Yes, there you go. And we ended up having like twelve episodes. <laughs> and like, those are probably my favorite episodes. Yeah, those we, are good. Like, we also had lots of guests at that time, right? Like, I think we had uh, we had Doug Wilson in. We had a few. You know what I mean? We had a few people yeah. in over that time. Nate's not just Seamus Blubbing there. His his mind was doing like that. We did have some people. And then, yeah, like, we used to have more yeah. than just us. At, like, which yeah. is the like code. We're like, we should probably do that again, eh? Yeah, um, honestly, yeah, we should. We should. Uh, we should get Doug back on, and we should do. Um, I've actually been talking to uh, Shameless Plug for his book here, Dominic Nontenet who wrote uh, The Spine of Scripture, which is just this phenomenal, amazing book that I read and then made everybody in my life read. Phenomenal. And he also co-authored probably a more popular book after that called It's Good to Be a Man, which he co-authored with Michael Foster that Canon Press picked up. C.R. Wiley, he's, I don't know if you knew this, he's working on a new manuscript called How to Fight Communism in Your Spare Time. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, he's he's good, good to come back on at some point as well. So yes, we should have guests back on at some point. We, so if you're listening to this and you're like even remotely famous, let us know. No, I'm just <laughs> we should have Paul Toshik on. He's not famous, but in my mind, he's pretty famous. He, he may be our one most traveled guest. And then two, That's like true. he might be our biggest fan. He, Maybe. There isn't a week that goes by that he doesn't like tell you you should be in here recording. Yeah. Like at one point he was just like, thank you for getting hired. Like now you guys can record more often. Like that's not why he (laughs) did it. It's a benefit. What we need to do is in the new church building, we need to put a recording studio in there so that when we have our great ideas, we're like, let's just do this in front of the microphone. I feel like most of our conversations would be entertaining to listen to if nothing else. And enlightening, I think. Um, <laughs> and then we could just like bring Dave in rather than us come today. Yeah. Um, we could show Dave some hospitality because he's shown us so much. <laughs> Although Dave doesn't like to leave the house as much as for a guy who likes to travel around and, and do the RV life for a while, he doesn't like to leave home as much. He's a homebody. Yeah. yeah okay. What are we talking about today? We, oh, tr- we should talk about the Fight Laugh Feast network. We're a part of that thing. Conference went last week. We didn't get to go there. We're still like, we're still in it. They didn't kick us out. 
But hopefully next year there's no travel restrictions and we can all get together. I feel like we said that in 2021. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, we're still part of it. I'll let you know if they kick us out for not attending the conference two years in in a row. In fairness, I am a little shocked that they haven't kicked us out for being Reformed Baptists. Uh, do we were know? responsible for the transgender <laughs> trend. <laughs> I I was wondering if that would come up at all. Yeah. Um, we were silent. And yeah, we, we will continue to be so. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I actually I think their their episode with James White I thought was great. James always does a good job with that stuff, and we love those guys. Even though I remember Doug Wilson one time talking about how you know if there's a hundred criminals to be hung, you know somebody gets hung first and somebody gets hung one hundredth. So. Pedo-baptism is pretty low on my priority scale, right? I want to hang all the... <laughs> makes it sound like I want to hang all the dispies before I hang the pedo-baptist. Not hanging people. I'm hanging ideas. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I think... Principalities. Yeah. I think that as the church needs to solidify against cultural ideologies like wokeism, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, I think baptism is sort of the least of our worries right now. But anyway. Yeah, not to tie this too much into last week's last week's episode, but... I think that's one of the big benefits that COVID showed a lot, a lot of like church leadership. Um, yeah. Not when I say that, I mean like big C church is that like there are bigger issues than breaking fellowship over like say paid baptism. Right. It's more important that you go to a, a Bible believing Bible teaching Bible faithful church than it is that you necessarily. Where Christ is the head, yes. not the state. Exactly. Right? Like exactly. I think that's some people would say that that's not as big of an issue, but uh uh, actually, uh, non-tenant who I was just talking about. It's a great article. He is, yeah, he has, he has a great article about. I think it's called. So on, I think it's called. It's his website's non.com, right? B n o n n.com. But he has an article on there called "Why I Can't Worship at Your State Compliant Church," and it's honestly, it's, it's a, it's a beautifully written article in terms of just it answers every question. But the the main idea is is that. The corporate gathering is about tying the body into the head. And so if we disagree about who is the head of the church, we fundamentally disagree about everything. So he can't worship at your state-compliant church, is what the article goes on to say, because we disagree about what head we're being built up into. Even if practically you don't think that the state is the head of your church, if you shut down and complied, then functionally the state is the head of your church. So anyway, it's a great article. I would I would recommend it to everybody. If I remember, I'll put it in the show notes, but I probably won't. You won't remember. So <laughs> comment and ask for it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well played, well played. <laughs> Continuing our little mini-series <laughs> on uh, responding to, I guess, church criticism, right? So last week we just talked about how... What people hate about Crossroads Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> With sort of the, the rise of popularity and the, the growth of the church, obviously comes a bunch of people who are being criticized either by their former churches, by their friends, by their family members, or whatever, for coming to our church for various reasons. And so it's not like as though we're responding to criticism. Have you ever been to, this is a side note, man, my, my mind is very all over the place today. It's fine. Um, have you ever know, uh, seen on Doug Wilson's uh, site, dougwills.com, where he does blog and may blog, that there's a whole controversies tab where he like responds to all of the controversies and all the things he's been accused of? Yeah. So it's, it's long <laughs> and, and awesome. He responds to it well. But, but our, our purpose in this is not just to respond to criticism. Like I, I could care less kind of what people are saying about the church in terms of defending the church itself. I think what's happening at the church is, is defense enough, right? But in terms of equipping our people for the conversations that they'll have when people are like, oh, you go to Crossroads, da-da-da-da-da. 
uh, we want to equip them to be able to respond to that criticism or yes. to those accusations. Yeah. That's why we're doing that. This is for the people to have the conversation at, th- at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving whatever, Christmas, yeah. whenever you're going to be seeing people. And they sit down and be like, this is what I've heard about Crossroads. Right. Um, and it's just like, no, no, here you go. And a little bit like for this one anyway, a little bit like, yeah. We are. (laughs) This one, you give a big high five and you say, darn darn right. So last week we talked about, is the church too political? And, you know, the big idea there is we're probably more political than other churches because I think too many churches try to avoid this issue because they don't want to be controversial. But certainly politics is a byproduct of preaching enthronement, not just atonement, right? Like we, we preach the atonement, but the atonement is part of the enthronement of Christ. Christ is sitting on the throne, and that means something for every sphere. It means every, every king of the earth is to, to kiss the sun lest he be, perish in the way, right? So anyway, here's today's criticism. The second most popular criticism of Crossroads is isn't that the church that's (laughs) post-millennial? And this comes in various forms. Basically, it's a criticism against our eschatology. So it comes in various forms. Number one, isn't that the church with the pastor with the weird eschatology, right? He's post-mill. Number two, it comes in, they don't believe in Israel, which is funny, or like they, they believe in replacement theology or they don't, you know, whatever, something like that. Or it's like, you know, they don't believe in a rapture. They don't believe, right? So They'll pick like a, a certain aspect of dispensationalism and say, but they don't, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, truth be told, we don't we don't believe in a rapture as most people understand the rapture. No, we don't believe that modern day Israel is of any prophetic importance, except that Romans 11, we're post-millennialists, Romans 11 does say that one day God is going to turn the hearts of Israel back to himself. We do take that literally, but that's because we're post-millennial and because as the nations come to Christ, I think Israel will be one of the last, Judaism will be one of the last kind of world religions, yeah, enemies to be hung, yeah, to use our example from before, Judaism will be one of the last world religions to be conquered by Christianity. Well, because we're post-millennial, we believe that Christianity will win the day, we will win the culture. We just don't elevate them above, like, we we believe the same about Islam. Yeah, absolutely. Islam will be defeated. Yeah, I just mean, the only reason I point that out is, number one, because most dispensationalists or Zionistic Christians do have a special place in their heart for modern-day Israel, right, modern-day Israel. And then, you know, Romans 11 does make it clear that, you know, well, what about the Jew? And he's like, well, the Jews will be swallowed up in in this whole world thing, right? Like, so I think that's important. So are we too post-millennial, Chris? Not at all. If anything, if anything. (laughs) We are perfectly post-millennial. If anything, I want more people to be (laughs) post-millennial. Yeah. In in fairness, like I would say this is a crossroads criticism, but it's like out of all of them, this is the one that's like mostly you. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's um, too post mill. Like I think people by extension, the other leaders get labeled with it like as well. And then obviously as the leaders go, so goes the church, right? So this one is one of those things that's like it's directly because like the truth is like every sermon, like we'd made the joke months ago now, but on one of the most recent podcasts about like everything turns back to post-millennial theology. Right. Um, And it's not because we want to beat that dead horse. It's that once you start to look at how it permeates all of all of scripture, Scripture, it's hard not to be optimistic about the kingdom about Christ's victory and culture. And it's not that we are trying to beat that dead horse. It's that we want to remind people that there's, there's victory that like, and 
those are the things that get highlighted. I often say when we do answer this question, because we answer this question like a lot. A you lot. just had a family over at your house this past week where it was like they came over to talk about this. Yeah, um, it's just like so. And this is what we're sniffing out. <laughs> and four hours later, um, but no, it's a, the idea is simply like your your even your preaching style is built on two pillars. Yeah, the sovereignty of God and optimistic eschatology. Yeah, and so like it's going to permeate everything we do. So to answer your question with a billion words instead of five is, are we too post-millennial? No, because I don't actually think there can be such a thing. We aren't saying that like tomorrow the world's going to be perfect and everything's going to like, we've often said like, it might get worse before it gets better. It might like slow incremental gains. Like the mustard seed kingdom is growing. It's just not realized yet. Right. And so, and, and this would be, so one of the other criticisms that I've heard, and so if anybody ever encounters this term, there's two terms that maybe in this podcast, I'd like to equip our people to be able to answer. The first is very simple replacement theology. Do they believe in replacement theology? Replacement theology is, is sort of a derogatory term that basically just means that we believe that the church has replaced Israel in God's redemptive plan. And I would just say there's no such thing as a replacement theologian. Like, it's not actually a—it a, gets lobbied at people like us who don't necessarily believe that modern-day Israel is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy— I mean, Ephesians 2 makes this incredibly clear, right? So um, that God is no longer, right? No, The people of God is no longer restricted to ethnic Judaism, right? To to ethnic Israel. That, But now God is creating out of the two men, Jew and Gentile, right? Those who were far off and those that were near, right? The dividing wall of hostility talked about in Ephesians 2 was literally a wall that was placed in the temple that divided the Jewish side of the temple from the, the Gentile outer courts of the of of the temple. So what Christ broke down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility was between Jew and Gentile, and God is now creating out of the two, one new man comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And what is he building us into, that says? It says into a dwelling place of God, right? Into the into the body of Christ. So there's no such thing as a replacement theologian. We all believe there's always only one people of God. Under the old covenant, it was generally ethnically restricted, although Rahab, Ruth, lots of Gentiles were grafted in. But under the New Covenant, when Christ comes back and reclaims the nations from Satan, right, rebuys back the lost birthright of Adam, he then goes and and lays claim to every nation and is then grafting Gentiles into the tree which represents God's people. So there's no such thing as replacement theology. We all only believe that God's people are comprised now of Jews and Gentiles. That's how you can answer the accusation of replacement theology. The other one is, are you dominionists, right? So dominion theology is generally a sort of post-millennial eschatology, but it's really connected to sort of the word of faith movement. And so the idea here is that Christianity will win the day, will win the culture, but the way in which it comes about is through the faith of God's people kind of naming and claiming and like bringing, you know, it's that whole word of faith thing, right? So like speaking it and and seeing God's will manifested in our lives. It's a very prosperity-oriented gospel. And so dominionism in that sense and postmillennialism are very different because postmillennialism believes in the slow, gradual growth of faithful living, right? So we aren't saying that Christ is going to come back to a Christianized world in, in the next five years. Personally, I believe that we're still part of the early church. I think we got at least 8,000 years to go kind of thing, right? So if, if, if we're 2,000 years since the cross and we went from 120 people in Acts chapter 1 
to hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even a million people across the globe, what other progress can be made in 8,000 years, right? So post-millennialism and dominionism are separated mm -hmm. both by how the nature of the growth, right? Slow, gradual versus like sort of manifesting through faith. And then secondly, the means by which. So we believe that Christianity wins the day through the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. Dominionism says that the kingdom of God grows through the calling into being the faith by faith of the people of God. But I think, uh, what is it, Isaiah 9 kind of refutes that, where it says, you know, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. It says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not through your naming and claiming, it's not through, right? The zeal of the Lord of hosts does this through the everyday obedience of his people, slowly, gradually, like a mustard seed, right? Like leaven being worked through the loaf, yada, yada, yada. We, we've talked about this before. Yeah, practically, a dominionist would be top down, put the king on the throne, make right. everybody make That's everybody right. follow him. And yeah. what we're saying is the reverse. Like yeah. it's, a, it's a groundswell from the bottom up. We end up with Christian politicians because everybody's a Christian. Already. Yeah, you not because like, we elect the right guy, but because so many people become Christians that they elect Christian leaders, right? Yes. Like that's how, yeah. that's how it ends up happening. Because the value, the value of the leaders reflect the people that it's... That's right. That's right. To. Yeah. And so, yes, so we are post-millennial. And just so you know, like post-millennialism is not embedded in our like membership covenants or anything like that. We have... Yet. <laughs> um, we, uh, we have, like, in terms of the four theological distinctives of the church, one of the, the theological distinctives of the church is optimistic eschatology. Yeah. And that's all we say. And I, I'm very quick. In fact, in the membership uh, meeting, which we just had one, I often say, like, I don't care if you're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, as long as you are optimistic about the, the spread and the expanse of God's kingdom in history. And the three books that I point out are Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, a historic premillennialist, Kingdom Come by Sam Storms, who is an amillennialist, and An Eschatology of Victory by Marcellus Kick, who is a postmillennialist. You read any one of those books, you will see an optimism about the growth of the kingdom in history, and it's, and it's from all three major positions. So we're not saying you have to be postmillennial, and, and the church is, is not, but it is true that like, I am optimistic about the gospel's impact on history. I, I'm optimistic about people's soteriology. I believe that when people get saved, they get transformed, and transformed people transform the world around them. And so it does lace everything. And I think one of the things that people find is they might disagree with us on eschatology because of their, their history with eschatology, where they've been taught, and it's hard for them sometimes when they've been dispensational for 20 years to let go of some of the, the, the nuances of that. But it is interesting that like we do get the encouragement often that like despite everything that's going on in the world, despite the fact that you still have pending charges, despite the fact that the church got in trouble with the law for staying open, all this kind of stuff, it's never pessimistic here. That's a result of optimistic eschatology. Like we believe that whatever suffering we go through now is going to reap real world benefits for our children and our children's children because we do believe the general trajectory of history is towards a Christianized culture. That really does lace everything that we're doing. Like even right now, so for those of you who aren't a part of our church, this is what's going on at our church. And for, for those who are a part of our church, let's just like talk about how awesome our, our church is for a second. One of the things that we're, we're doing is we're acquiring land to be able to build. And, and what we want to build is not just a bigger church. 
Uh, actually, the, the sanctuary itself might not get all that much bigger. It, it has to kind of get a, a bit bigger. Yeah, a whole right bunch now. of people's eyes just switch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll get bigger, don't worry. But but that's primarily, we're not just building a bigger worship center. We are building a what, what we're calling Antioch, right? And the reason we're calling it Antioch is because in, in Acts chapter 11, it talks about how Antioch became this place from which ministry started happening, missions started happening, right? It was it was Antioch that became a blessing to other churches, including like they sent relief to Jer- the Jerusalem church during a time of famine, right? It was from Antioch where Paul was sent out as a missionary in all three of his journeys. Antioch became the, the home base, the hub that he returned to between missionary endeavors. So our goal, our, our desire for church growth is not to get to be a big church, but we want to build a ministry hub that will, like a furnace, continue to churn out new churches, new church plants, new pastors all over southwestern Ontario. Our church family is just eating this vision up, and sort of the sky's the limit on on sort of some of the big dreams that are going on for it. I am kind of bragging about our church. I think our church is awesome, but I say that to say, like, the post-millennialism is what fuels all of that. I'm not saying everybody is post-millennialist, but they've bought into the idea that we can have a real-world impact. We can actually win Ingersoll. We can actually win Thamesford. We can besiege London and win the small rural communities that surround London and have an impact on the workplaces and the universities and the, and the colleges in London. Like People have bought into this vision because they've been getting a healthy dose of post-millennialism for a decade. Even if you don't agree with all of the nitty-gritty details of the eschatological view, it affects the way you see culture and the impact that a church can have on the culture. So I, I think that, yeah, we're post-millennialists, and like, just kind of own that, because it, it's, it's what's fueled our ability to do what we're doing now. That's so exciting. Absolutely. We, we said at the end of the last episode, like, this is how we stay unified with all of the other disagreements and you know, carpet color and all that other stuff that is so not important at all, yeah. because a church on mission together prioritizes the mission. And so we have a vision, we have a mission, and the mission is we want to take, I'm going to use the word, we want to take dominion of Southwestern Ontario. We right. want Southwestern Ontario yeah. to be a Christian province, a Christian area. And the way we do that is by taking dominion in all of our little spheres. But we do that because we prioritize the mission to do that. You know what I mean? So even if we have people who are on mission together with us, who don't actually ultimately see the same victory at the end that we do, they're still attracted to the actual mission because they see like, but nobody walks into our church and says, you know what? I don't actually think the gospel or sharing Christ is going to do anything today. Right. And it's like, well, no, nobody believes that, right? Like right. we all believe that there's power in the, in the word. And so. And what, how successful it'll all be, we might disagree on, but absolutely. let's, let's all still work towards it. Right. Yeah. And I, I always jokingly say, uh, I'll change my eschatology in mid, midair. Like if I'm getting raptured, you know, at least we're working towards the same mission until that time. But like in terms of like mm-hmm. equipping our people for, like you said, these conversations, here's, here's one of the things that I, I would just say. When somebody says, you know, oh, they're so post-millennial or I don't agree with their eschatology or whatever the case is, I would just bring it back to everybody agrees on the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? We're, we're to go, we're to baptize, and we're to teach the nation's obedience, right? We are to disciple the nations. You missed the most important part. Go therefore. No, I, all no, authority no. in heaven and earth. All authority in yeah. heaven and earth. <laughs> yeah. We all agree with the Great Commission. So when somebody says like, oh, they have such weird eschatology or whatever, then just say like, what do you believe about the Great Commission? They'll be like, oh, we're supposed to what? 
baptize believers and disciple the nations because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Quite simply, how I remind people is just, do you think that the Great Commission was given to us that we might fulfill it? Right? Like, do do you think that Jesus gave us that as as a, like, hey, you're never going to come anywhere near this, but here's something that'll just keep you busy till I come back. Right? No, like, Christ gave it to us in order that it might be fulfilled, and no matter what, we all have the same marching orders. So crossroads with our weird eschatology and, you know, Joe Blow Baptist down the street and their dispensational eschatology still have the same marching orders, and that is because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach the nation's obedience. That's what we're called to do. So we, we have to both teach the nation's obedience and baptize believers. So let's just get busy doing that thing. And how successful it will be, like how far the Great Commission goes, let's leave, just leave that in God's hands, right? So the eschatology matters a whole lot less as if we can agree on the, the marching orders. And the marching orders are, let's go make disciples and let's disciple the nations, right? So... Yeah. I think so, that's how I would equip our people to respond to that. Yeah. Because not everybody will necessarily have studied eschatology, you know, to the extent to be able to refute the the hyper dispensationalist that that's lobbying, well, what about Matthew 24 and what about this and what about that, right? A lot of people who label the accusation, it's just the lazy argument too, right? Like cuz most people haven't studied eschatology to the point where they're like, yep. here I'm a studied premillennialist or whatever. And I'm not saying like every premillennialist hasn't done that, but I mean most people don't study eschatology cuz They've read Left Behind or whatever. Yep. And so anything that bucks what is the majority rule always gets labeled as the outlier. Um, the outlier if it's unstudied. So back that up to the Reformation. What was the criticism of Martin Luther at the time of the Re- like? He's crazy. Saved by grace alone. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. but well, now five hundred exactly five hundred years later, we're all like, yeah, that was obvious. How it like? <laughs> um, but well, I guess some of us are we're <laughs> that way. But somebody always has to be. You use the analogy of like a criminal always has to get hung first or last, right? Somebody always has to be first. And I'm not saying we're the first post-millennial church, but somebody has to lead the way if that if we actually want to do the thing. So thankfully, we're not alone in that. There's the Ezra Institute. There's obviously Moscow. There's Durban. Um, Trinity. Like, like tons of other post-millennial churches. But it is sometimes a lazy argument against us just because it's not the majority yeah. majority rule. And, and um, one thing I'd equip our people to to know as well is like I often say— yeah, I know. It seems pretty weird that we're post-millennial because most churches are pre-millennial, but it's a bit of a minority view now. But if you look back at church history, yeah, it's actually the going. majority view, right? Is that what you were going to say? Anyway? Yeah, just, and like I think just people don't realize that like how terms change. Like they called it all millennialism for yeah. hundreds of years when until there was a distinction between post-millennial exactly and, and, and like it, exactly and like so what we're believing is actually has been the dominant yeah. eschatology of. Jonathan Most Edwards, B.B. Yeah, Warfield, John exactly. Calvin, John Knox, Samuel Rutherford, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah we keep, can keep just going. Just keeping up name people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that, right, is it was a majority view. But I guess what I would say to people who are coming in is whenever there's a criticism and you don't quite understand it, right, even the term dominionism, right, I didn't know that term, but I got labeled a dominionist enough that I had to look it up. And I'm like, oh man, that's a word of faith. Like, Don't lump me in with Andrew Womack. <laughs> if there's ever a criticism that's lobbied against you that you don't know, like study the term, figure it out, talk to somebody, you know what I mean? One of the things I will say, because I got excited when you were talking about it, so it's probably a good way to maybe end the podcast, is talking about taking dominion. At the end of the day, when I think about our responsibility, I'm getting more and more convinced that 
reclaiming the cultural mandate is of the utmost importance in Christianity, right? I'm reading um, um, It's Good to Be a Man right now with uh, several young men in our church, and uh, kind of the big idea of that book is men are made for dominion. Like, we were created to take dominion. The idea of what it means to be a man who takes dominion, I think a lot of times we think, oh, that means the world around us, that means dominating your wife, that means, you know, all these sorts of patriarchal, like, awful things. And I would just say, actually, patriarchy, dominion, these are all beautiful things that I think as Christians we need to reclaim. And dominion starts internally. It starts with self-government, right? We've talked a lot about sphere sovereignty over the last couple of years because of the relationship between church and state. But remember that the the primary government in Scripture is self-government. That First and foremost, you are called as a Christian to take dominion of yourself, that you are to control your lust, you're to control your thought life, you are to control your anger, and you are to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. You're meant to do all these things. I, I was talking to a, a gentleman today, I was just doing some counseling with a, an individual in our church who in the past has, has struggled with substance, and, and I was talking to him, and you know, the world, the world would have, like for example, the idea of AA, right? And you know, in the world, there's this sort of mantra of like, once an addict, always an addict, right? This is a disease and, and all this kind of stuff. And I shared with him a uh, sort of a vision today, and I don't mean that in the Pentecostal sense. <laughs> I mean that in, a, in, in biblical counseling, I'm always trying to say, like, we, we have to have an idea of what the vision is that you want to get to. What's the vision of you, you know, whole or healthy? Or if I'm doing marriage counseling, what's the vision of, of this marriage, you know, the way God intended it to be? What's If we can agree on what that vision is, then we can work together to try to get there. But what I was saying is, like, it's not actually... Your goal in in overcoming substance is not to abstain from it forever. And I said, your goal is actually that you ought to be able to enjoy the things that God has put in the world the way he meant for them to be enjoyed. And it kind of set him back a minute. He was just like, whoa, wait, wait, what? My goal for you, my hope for you is that, you know, the Psalms say that God gave wine to make men's hearts glad. (laughs) So, So clearly God meant he created wine for a purpose. And part of it has to do with making men's hearts glad. And I want you to be able to have a glass of wine and have a glad heart one day. And so your end goal is not to be strong enough to abstain. Your end goal is actually to master this. This has mastered you for years. And what it looks like to be a whole self-governed Christian is for you to master this instead of it to master you, which means that you go and, and you may not be able to touch it for a while. But through sanctification and through self-control and through the cultivation of the fruits of the Spirit, one day you will be able to enjoy this the way God intended you to enjoy this, right? It actually shocked him. He kind of pushed back a little bit, and then I opened up some scriptures and we, we talked about it. But like, I think these are important things for us to understand because we are, as Christians, meant to master our world. And that starts with our inner desires. It starts with all these kinds of things. But that's an inside-out sort of transformation. And at the very heart, I think, of that dominion mandate, the very heart of post-millennialism, if you want to say that, is the outworking of that. It's everything that God does is transforming the world from the inside out. He transforms from a heart to a mind, to a whole person, right, to that person, whether they are a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, whatever the case is, to that family, from that family to the household of households, the church, and through churches to societies, and through societies to nations, and through nations to the world. 
That's how dominion works. And so at the end of the day, if you understand that that's what we believe about taking dominion, then the post-millennialism doesn't seem all that bad because really all we're talking about is making individuals who have been saved by grace live out their calling in such a way that they live transformed lives in the world and expect that their transformed lives will make ripple effects in the world around them. That's what it's all about. Amen. So I don't know if that all related, but I just went there in my mind. So there. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you could have just said be transformed by the renewal of your mind and ended it, but like, no, I'm just kidding. No, yeah. that's, that, that's, that's brilliant because that's literally like, the, that is, step one, right? Right. You, you take captive your thoughts. Um, what you were saying about like addiction is super, like I've actually never even have, have thought of that because abstaining is just symptom relief. What we're called to do is have a new heart and apply the new heart to the thing. You might need to abstain from the symptoms for a long time. Like there, there's yeah. a scripture, like if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. Yep. But like ideally, no, just change the heart and right. renew the mind and, and reorient to the thing. And not that this is on the same level of addiction in any way, shape or form. But I was thinking about just always look internally before you put it onto other people. And I was thinking about like, I used to be a massive sports guy. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm still, I remember big, that. Yeah. I'm a big sports fan, but I remember I like, this just recently happened. I've been, I've been getting more back into the, into like the, the NFL a little bit, just simply because, you know, there's a couple guys in our church that are into the bills. The bills are really good. That's my team. Um, so I've been watching it like just, you know, watching the games. So like, it's funny. Heather's like, Oh, you're back into this. No, I just wanted to check it. And, and she was just like, she's like, yeah, this wouldn't master you. And she, th- that was the term she used. She's like, this wouldn't master you today. Like it used to. And then she just was like, I remember like it used to be, I don't see you on Sunday after church. It was like until eight, nine o'clock at night. And it was just like this thing. I was just like, that is thing. Like now if like, you know, I didn't see the game this past Sunday. Like, I don't care. Whereas before that would have like, and it's just like, it's just funny how like now I can go back to enjoying something that God created yeah because it's for in, your it's, enjoyment in in moderation because it won't master you exactly because yeah. it's in the proper place that's you know right I mean? and it's like but i did have to go through a period of time where i abstained yeah i'm just like yeah i was just thinking about that like in terms of like the why and be like because that is the end goal right like to, yeah it's to is it's to enjoy life in god's world the way he intended it right and so it's everything in its proper place and i think i've often used the analogy of have I talked about the Island of Sirens on this podcast? You've probably heard me tell this story a, t- a zillion times. I can't remember. I, so I, It's been long enough. All it's right, a- <laughs> fair enough. So like in Greek mythology, there is an island called the Island of Sirens. And on the Island of Sirens, there are these half bird, half female creatures who could sing beautiful, melodious music, but were also cannibalistic, you know, good old Greek mythology. And so in Greek mythology, it was well known that if you get too close to this island called the Island of Sirens, that you would hear the sirens call. And that's where that phrase comes from, either the sirens call, the sirens song. You'd hear this song, this beautiful music, and it would be so beautiful and so alluring and so tempting that even though you knew what was waiting you on that island, you would go headlong into it. And the island was surrounded by like a cove with all these jagged rocks and, and they get shipwrecked and, and these sirens would kill the sailors and eat them. You know, Greek mythology is littered with stories about the island of sirens, but I, I bring it down to two different heroes, Odysseus and Jason. And so in the Odyssey, Odysseus is trying to get home 
and it's been years since he's been home, and so he doesn't want to add anything to his trip, because generally in Greek mythology, people who had to go past the island of Sirens would go the long way around and add to their trip so that they could avoid the, the dangers of the island. Whereas Odysseus didn't want to add to his trip. He'd been away from home long enough, and so he decided to go right past the island. But what he did was he had his sailors put beeswax in their ears so they couldn't hear the sound of the sirens. Odysseus, thinking this is the only chance I'll ever get to hear the songs, left beeswax out of his own ears, but strapped himself to the mast of his ship and told his sailors, don't untie me no matter what I say. And so they go past, the, he hears the song, none of his sailors do, they row past the island. While he's there, there's this long description in the, in the poem of how he, knowing, even though, even though he knew the fate that was awaiting him there because of the beauty of the song and how alluring it was, he would have taken himself off the mast, jumped in and swam to the island himself if he could have, right? So that's how tempting and alluring the song was. But in, he gets past it, the song's out of his head, the, the sailors take the beeswax, out of their their ears and, and Odysseus is okay. So that's the like, you know, don't go to the bars, right? You get don't drink alcohol, abstain for a while, all that kind of stuff. It's interesting though, Jason, Jason and the Argonauts, he had to go past the island of Sirens uh, two times. And so he brought on the ship with him Orpheus. Orpheus was said to be the the most renowned musician in all of Greece. He could play music that was so beautiful that the gods themselves would stoop to listen. It says that he was blessed by the gods to be able to play. And so when when they got to into the, the range of the siren song, Jason ordered Orpheus to the bow of the ship to play a more beautiful song. And so they weren't tempted by the alluring song of the sirens because they were listening to a more beautiful song of Orpheus. And so I use that when I'm counseling somebody who's maybe addicted to pornography or something like that, I'll often say like, you know, do all the things, you know, get data off your phone, get your laptop out of your room, do all those physical things, but that's not what's going to change the heart. What's going to change the heart is finding a more beautiful song to be enticed by. And I think one of the things that's so beautiful about post-millennialism and about understanding God's plan for redemptive history is that it's a way better story, right? It's a more beautiful song. Don't catch yourself up in the fleeting pleasures of the world. Like, put your hands to the work of building the kingdom because that's of eternal value. You know, work hard at expanding Christ's kingdom. Work hard at taking dominion of the world around you. Work hard at raising kids who are going to raise kids who are going to raise kids who are going to raise kids to love God and expand his kingdom. Make a better story than, you know, I, I'm the 22-year-old who watches pornography secretly and goes to church and is ashamed of it. That's a bad story. Don't tell that story. Get caught up in the story of Christ's expanding kingdom. And I think that's what people have found as they've come to Crossroads is there's more going on there. Their families get to be caught up in this better story. And it's not a story we're telling. It's a story that we're a part of. And the story itself is that Christ is making the kingdoms of man the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's about the knowledge of God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And a small country church from Ingersoll, Ontario gets to be a part of that story. And so does every family that attaches itself to them because that's the story that we're caught up in. And we're not the only ones. There's lots, as you said, there's lots of churches out there. But my point is, is that's the beauty that you get swept up in when you take eschatology seriously. Amen. Right. Like, that's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, we went longer than we wanted to. So uh, hopefully we're back in the habit now and we'll be back in the studio next week. So you can hear us talk. Of, are we a cult? Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. Spoiler alert. No. <laughs> All right. Or see, yes. See <laughs>
All right, see you next time.